On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the February 2016 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what I guarantee is going to be another terrific conversation and one that's going to be quite relevant for a lot of our practices. My first guest is Courtney Bruce from the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine. She'll be here to discuss her article, Navigating Ethical Conflicts Between Advanced Directives and Surrogate Decision Makers' Interpretations of Wishes. Courtney, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Also joining us is Dr. Trevor Bibler, postdoctoral fellow in clinical ethics at Baylor College of Medicine. He'll also be discussing the same article that he's a, uh, an author on as well. Uh, Trevor, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you, Kyle. So let's, let's actually give set a little context for everybody. I mean, what was your goal here uh, in, in your writing? What were you trying to achieve? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll gladly uh, step in on that one. This, uh, the entire project kind of came about from the fact that we had a single case that was very, very ethically challenging, but it kind of represented a uh, kind of a, a series or a theme of ethics consultations that we had had over the last couple of years that represents about 5% of our consult volume, volume, where there seems to be some type of potential conflict between what is documented in an advanced directive, usually a living will, and the story, the perception, the conversation that we're getting out of the patient's, uh, from the patient's surrogate decision maker. There seems to be some type of conflict between that. And a, a case we had a couple months ago was especially pointed on this question, and so we presented this case both to our, our colleagues within the Ethics Consultation Service and then as part of our routine education that we do here, we also presented this case to our colleagues at system hospitals at Houston Methodist Hospital System. And the conversation was really rich and great, and as part of that, we kind of came out with a couple, couple considerations that we thought might be good to talk, talk about in a more public context. So that was Fantastic. the genesis of the article itself. Okay, so so then if both of you could set the, the framework even a little bit further, I mean, and, and obviously your um, your article does you know uses that this challenging case you talked about as a, I think a framework mm-hmm. for what you what you've outlined. But I was thinking about this because uh, this comes up uh, frequently, and you said it represented about five percent of your your mm-hmm. uh, ethical consult volume. But I have to imagine it probably indirectly represents a, a pretty significant amount of of time on any you know busy intensive care service or any busy hospital service of the mm-hmm. of the balancing act. So so, you know, the article, you, you all talk about um, the, the, the push with, you know, Medicare and, and CMS to say, mm-hmm. and understandably, we need to have some more outlines for decision-making, but then you're proposing indirectly to say, well, maybe that's not necessarily what we should accomplish, and there's definitely times where it's perfectly okay to override that. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 I, I, I very much appreciated the very, you know, kind of provocative statement that you put in the middle mm-hmm. of your, right at the beginning. So, so please expand further for us. I, I think we... Oh. I think we both feel, or maybe our entire team feels, that living wills have their limitations. They definitely do, but they're here, and they're here to stay, and they're likely going to grow within the next few years in light of of the Medicare expansion. So it's how do you work with that, with the idea that living wills are here, they're going to grow, how can we work with them, and how can we make sure that, most importantly, that it is consistent with what the patient wants, and sometimes living wills are not. So that's our whole goal in providing a framework was really to try to encourage consistency in how these types of cases are approached. Because our feeling was that, or actually not even just our feeling, more anecdotal experience and observation, was that when the living will kind of synced up with what the clinicians thought was appropriate, they were okay telling the surrogates, hey, we've got to go with the living will. 
And then when the surrogates were requesting something that the clinicians thought was more appropriate, then they were trying to figure out a way to override the living will, but not really doing it in a consistent manner. And some of our some of our cases, I mean, the 5% case volume is kind of our more formal consultation, but, you know, we also round in the ICUs and we also work with clinicians on a daily basis. And we felt that this was really... Uh, a lack, uh, an area where there was lacking certainty. So it's how do you work with existing, with the living wills, and how do you make sure that you approach them in a consistent manner, in a deliberate manner, in making sure that um, you know when you could or should override living wills, but not abusing it in any sort of way. There's, there's got to be some level of, of law in this. I mean, and, and, and that's where I'm, maybe you could expand on this further because I think, boy, does that seem to, you know, if I'm, if I'm a busy ICU clinician and I'm, you know, I've got a living will in front of me that says, you know, do, do this, but don't do that. And then a loved one of that patient comes up and says, please do the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I may, and then meanwhile, a different family member shows up. I mean, you can see where this goes real quickly. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, well, wait a minute. Uh, I understand these principles. What's the law? here? Am I, am I setting myself up for litigation when I decide to follow some of this? Mm-hmm. No. I, Go ahead, Trevor. Sorry, Courtney. Yeah. Uh, I think what you're pointing to is, is very, very important. And right now, there's, no, there's the, the possibility of a legal consensus as to how to manage this possible conflict between a surrogate and a documented living will. There's just, there's just no real consensus on that right now. Uh, so, for example, in states that have the POST form, which are, are growing in popularity, with, even within the POST form itself, they explicitly say that, hey, there's this possibility that there might be conflict between the living will and what you as a medical care provider and what you're hearing by, uh, from the surrogate decision maker. And the word that they used for this process is for physicians and surrogates to actually engage in collaboration. Okay. So what we're trying, part of what we're trying to do with, with these for uh, with these four ethical considerations is to try to really figure out what that collaboration is because the law itself at this point is fairly unclear, especially in those cases that have post forms that explicitly say, hey, there might have to be some collaboration going on and some negotiation going on. Yeah, the law isn't very good at uh, discerning or managing ethical conflicts. It's usually very, very boilerplate language. And so what we could find in doing a pretty systematic legal survey of the different state laws was just not at all useful, and it was muddled. In some states, they said, you know, honor the living will, but then they acknowledged that the patient's preferences should prevail and that there might be situations where the patient preferences suggested that you should move outside the living will, but didn't give any guidance as to what, what might permit that. And, and then, of course, there's the pulse forms, as, um, as Trevor alluded to. So we really couldn't find consensus, but even more importantly, where we did find law, it didn't give us a lot of guidance, and the collaboration is one example of it. So the law didn't help you. No, and well, that, I think that's good to know, though, because I think that also then, as you also point out in the article, then, if you're, if you're in this scenario where you're discussing we're going to, you know, override a living will and, and use the surrogate decision makers, by following, uh, you know, the tenets of, of, say, you know, the four principles that you talk about in your article, you know, you are then, I mean, approaching this from a, you know, a good faith perspective, and you've outlined that we've taken the appropriate precautions to understand that it's okay to, to you know, trump over this, this, this living will and, and probably really aren't realistically setting ourselves up for any form of a, a legal no. challenge, it would appear, right? 
or not successful legal challenge. I mean, anyway. Right, 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 anything, right. I guess that's what I meant. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's what I meant. <laughs> I think uh, I think most most courts and most lawyers, what they care about is seeing that there was really process in the way you approach it, and they care most importantly about honoring patients' preferences. And when you're trying to get at that and you're showing exactly how you tried to get at that in a very systematic, robust manner, it's going to be extremely hard to refute the good faith efforts of a, of a clinician. It's where there isn't a systematic process that I would be concerned about liability. So, so why not just a medical power of attorney? Because it sure seems to me that, you know, the one, as you guys talk about as well, one of the flaws of a living will is it's it's static and it's inflexible, you know. It is sort of you, you know, and and as we all know, I mean, tr- you know, medicine is ridiculously gray and fluid. And so, the idea of of having something that's sort of written in stone that uh, doesn't necessarily you know bend with what's happening to my patient um, sure seems unnecessarily rigid at times. And then, and you know, the the context then of saying, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm going to you know, we don't need to bother overriding anything because I have a dedicated person who is in charge of my medical decisions. Mm-hmm. Why, why is, is there, is that, I mean, so it, that sounds great, but is that more idealism than realism? And that, of course, mm-hmm. is not what's being pushed by CMS. And, you know, like you said at the very beginning, living wills are here to stay, so mm-hmm. deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Trevor, I'll let you take that one. Sure. Well, I think, I think what you're pointing to is something really important because the assumption that that kind of go, the ethical considerations that you were mentioning earlier and the kind of the theory behind these types of advanced care planning documents is that the gold standard for good autonomous medical decision making is always the patient him or herself and so why don't we use these documents and get as close to that gold standard as we possibly can how by going to the patient him or herself directly but as you're pointing out i'm, I'm sorry and then kind of the silver medal to this would be this notion of substituted judgment, right, where we right. can't exactly look to the patient, him or herself, so we'll go to those people who know him or her best, those people who are closest. And that's where the attempted, that's where the medical power of attorney form is supposed to kind of codify. Say It's supposed to allow the patient to say, hey, even if you don't have this gold medal, you can still go to my loved one or this other person invested in my care, and they'll be able to speak for me on my behalf. And so I think, I think what you're astutely pushing towards is that sometimes, and what our article is kind of arguing for, is that sometimes the assumption that the living will itself is the gold standard isn't there, right? We can't just assume this literal interpretation of a living will, which, as you said exactly, is a static document, that that necessarily always has to be the gold standard. Maybe it's the case that that should be the default practice, but that said, sometimes we think that, the, and we argue that, the surrogate can be the person who's actually speaking for the patient, even when we have a, uh, a living will that purportedly would be speaking for the patient. So, so, I think, so I think that what you're pointing to as to the reason why some, theolo- I'm sorry, some theorists think that the, uh, the dynamic nature of a medical power of attorney form would be more applicable is precisely because of that. It might be it might be the case that hey, we're looking towards this person to make decisions for me, even if I have these other preferences uh, made known and documented clearly. Okay. Well, then let's dive into it, guys. You you outlined the you know it's in table one, and then obviously it's. 
fleshed out within the entire and paper, and you're using uh, your your you know the case that kind of brought all this to to attention. Um, so flesh it out for our listeners. You know, many people maybe haven't read the article yet. Um, uh, your table one, which essentially is your ethical considerations for determining whether it's ethically supportable to override a living will. Um, and so if you could could outline the kind of four you know major considerations and and the pros and cons of that, and then you know feel free. I mean, give us you know or, or actually maybe before we jump into that, give us the context. You know, give us the story of Mr. C here and 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 what was going on, and and that's because that's obviously what prompted this whole you know discussion for yeah. you guys. Yeah, no, I, 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 mm-hmm. go ahead. I'll I'll give a little bit of the context, if, and then uh, Trevor, if you don't mind launching into that sure. the framework a little bit more specifically, because the context actually extends back a little bit more before. Um, well, several years ago, actually, when I, when I started to document these cases, just on some, some notes internally, and how I was approaching these cases, because I wanted to make sure from my own standpoint I was approaching them consistently. And so I was starting to look for gleaning, basically, considerations that we considered very relevant in how we were approaching the cases and considerations that we didn't consider very relevant. And I n- never um, approached a case thinking just, in a rigid way, the living will should be honored or not honored because context is extraordinarily important. And sometimes when you actually talk to patients and families, obviously you get a lot more context. And and I found myself struggling, actually, when I talk to families and they're teary-eyed and crying and saying, look, I know you've got this living will in front of you. I know my husband completed it. I know that, that you all feel this kind of need to honor it and the patient's voice is very appropriate, but I'm telling you, I know my husband. And this was not what he was thinking when he signed the living will. And I know him, and I can give you the context, and if you guys could just sit down and listen, and they would come up with this very, very compelling story. But I I didn't want to just let the ability of a a very compelling story to – to be the criteria for overriding right, everything right. well. It's not the quality of your sales pitch, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we were trying to figure out, well, well, when what context hits that threshold of this is truly the patient's voice, what this, we're hearing from the surrogate is truly in most in keeping, more in keeping with what the patient would want than what we're seeing on the living will. And, and when does it hit that threshold and when does it not hit that threshold? And so that's where sort of the context for coming up with a framework came from was more of an own self-interest of, I want to make sure I'm approaching these cases, which we were getting a fair number of them, with some sort of consistency and can give some clinicians some guidance who maybe don't have access to an ethics service as, as readily available as our hospitals do, to, to how they should think through these types of cases. So that's sort of the background. And then, Trevor, you can go into a little bit more specifics on the considerations and how we came up with them. Sure. No, gladly. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about this this single case that we focus on in the article. So we call him Mr. C. He was a guy uh, in his mid-60s who uh, had uh, pulmonary fibrosis about two years back, and he became a lung candidate at our hospital. And so as part of the routine lung transplant workup, he completed both a medical power of attorney document naming his wife, who we'll call Mrs. C., as his agent, primary and first agent, and he also filled out a living will. And the living will itself at this point was requesting that he receive uh, aggressive measures even in the event that he has a terminal or irreversible condition. Uh, and by aggressive measures, I, I'm sorry, I mean just all available life-sustaining treatment, that kind right. of thing. So right. he fills out that form. He ends up getting a lung transplant. That was about two years ago. Recently, so two years after that, he came back into our hospital. He, he ended up having a stroke and, and some additional 
decompensation, and the stroke itself resulted in a permanent loss of his interactive, uh, what well, persistent at the time, but what was thought to become a permanent loss of any type of uh, decision-making capacity and ability to interact. Okay. So, so at this point, the clinical care team, they kind of see two paths ahead, right? The one being the continued aggressive care with kind of this hope of stabilizing the patient to the point where he could be discharged to an LTAC facility and then eventually get appropriate care at home. Or the other, the other path that they were kind of thinking through was to focus on comfort and palliative care, given, given this neurological devastating event. Uh, so, and the clinical care team themselves, I, I think they kind of thought both paths were appropriate at the time, but they did recommend to the family the path of comfort care. That said, we, uh, the team quickly realized that there were advanced care planning documents, the living will, that supposedly tell us exactly what to do in this situation, right? Well, the patient himself, he does have a terminal or irreversible condition, and according to the living will itself, he would want to be kept alive in this condition with all available life-sustaining treatments. That said, Mrs. C, she disagrees completely, and she gives the clinical care team a couple reasons. Uh, The one is that, (laughs) according to Mrs. C, Mr. C thought he had to fill out these forms and request aggressive treatment to even qualify for the lung transplant. So she thought that if he had turned, if he hadn't filled these paperwork out, he, he, you know, he wouldn't have been listed. Exactly. Yeah, and that's not that's not unique. We we yeah, have a very high volume of transplant common. transplant patients that we see, and we hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another ahead, another thing. Yeah. No problem. Another thing, Miss uh, Mrs. C says was that uh, according to her, the patient when he was envisioning what life would look like, the possibility of living out his days. Uh, dependent on others or in any type of nursing facility, it just wasn't consistent with who he thought he was, despite what we're seeing as part of the advanced care planning documentation. Okay. And, uh-huh, sorry? No, go ahead. Yeah, please. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. And the third thing was that, uh, according to Mrs. C, they always thought as a, as a pair that they would still be making medical decisions together, and when he was incapacitated, Mrs. C could use her discretion to make any and all medical decisions. So in some sense, he thought that the MPOA trumped the living will. So look towards the dynamic family member rather than the single static piece of paper. And that's when we got our call, right? Right, I bet. (laughs) And we we did a lot of work to kind of flesh out those reasons uh, in a little bit more detail. But I think the main, the main crux of it was that the clinical care team and, and us were, were trying to find some acceptable route between just simply like acquiescing or kowtowing to the most vocal person in front of you, the surrogate, and this like strict, rigid interpretation of a document that we have some evidence to think that has been, it's been misunderstood in some sense. So that was really what, what I think kind of uh, centered our, our entire analysis and uh, it was often the main question in this supremely complex case. So what we ended up thinking through was the, the table that you were alluding to with the four, with the four considerations, is the four ethical considerations that we were, uh, that we were trying to, to find and, and look for. And I can go through those in, in a little bit of detail here. The first consideration is this notion of medical appropriateness. And this consideration is meant to really ensure that the requested therapy, the, the therapy that the surrogate requests, would be in the best interest of the patient insofar as 
as we the expected benefits would outweigh the expected harms. Okay. So, uh, kind of one way to help clarify that is through a counterexample. So, let's say that uh, let's create a slightly different scenario where Mr. C has a terminal irreversible condition, and uh, there's the possibility of stabilizing him, but it's not really in the patient's best interest. Let's say he's really acutely decompensated and has come to the hospital and is just on the verge of dying. And let's say he has a living will that requests comfort care, but we would have a surrogate that would disagree with that, right? So if, if we think that the clinical care team would think that aggressive measures would only prolong this dying process and cause more harm than benefit, then this criterion wouldn't be met in this context because it would be considered medically inappropriate to simply prolong the dying process, which isn't the case that we have here. Right. Here we have two paths that the clinical care team see as both appropriate, but that said, they would recommend the comfort care path given the uh, de- uh, neurological devastation that he's experienced. So that one seems, I mean, that, that one seems pretty straightforward. I mean, obviously uh-huh. it's an issue of, you know, this, it, both, both, you know, they both look kind of the living will and the, and the power of attorney or the surrogate has to essentially be making recommendations or suggestions that, uh, you know, are in tune with what would be considered um, appropriate care. It's the corroboration part that I, w- I found uh-huh. most interesting. Um, uh, sure. You know, it, to me, it was sort of the idea of gathering the evidence that, you know, what this person's saying is indeed true about what the, what their wishes would be if they were here to speak for themselves as yeah. opposed to a rigid document. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the fundamental aspect of corroboration is exactly what you're pointing out, is trying to get at some understanding of both context and story, right? I mean, the question is kind of, is, is what the surrogate telling us, is this a really more plausible interpretation of what the patient's wishes would be in this context? And... Uh, it, as we talk about in the article, there's a couple sources that I think in this case were especially helpful. Uh, here, Mr. and Mrs. C's family members were very, very helpful because we could talk with them independently, and they were in complete agreement that Mr. C would not have wanted to uh, live out his days in any type of nursing facility where he wasn't able to interact, hold his grandchildren, that type of thing. So so in this in this case, the corroboration really came from family members and but uh, a couple other sort, possible sources could be uh, other medical professionals, especially primary care providers who might have more of a longitudinal relationship with the patient than, let's say, an intensivist. And uh, uh, chart review, I think, can sometimes be helpful if you can get some sense of a consistent narrative through that, which is admittedly very hard, but might be only available evidence if there are no other family members. And. We should caution, we recognize that busy critical care clinicians may not be able to engage in the investigatory work that this would require, calling the PCP, skimming through the chart, spending a lot of time trying to pull in other people. So for this, it really, uh, we would encourage trying to bring in some other members of the team, whether that be social worker or an ethicist. It really depends on the hospital and their, their kind of resources and who generally does what. But uh, but this is something they don't have to go alone on. But we do try to come up with some, some, some things for them to think about as they're doing the corroboration so that it's, again, as um, systematic as it can be. And as you guys outlined, I mean, medical appropriateness and, co- and corroboration are, you know, both completely necessary if we're going to override living wills. Mm-hmm. But the, the remaining two between the, the, as you title them, discretion and purpose, you clearly need one of them, um, as, you, okay. as you guys outlined. Um, so could you go through that? Sure, gladly. I- Before we go, before we go into it, I will say that this is something that our team 
really went back and forth on um, because we found them important, but yet we knew they would be very, very hard to prove in some ways and that they may not uh, always manifest. So um, these were a little bit, while the, the first two were clear, even within ourselves, we, we went back and forth on and really tried to um, think about it deliberately. Go ahead, Trevor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really that's a really important point, Courtney. Yeah, so with discretion, we're primarily thinking of that consideration in the sense of, did the patient ever give any type of indication that they would prefer that their surrogate make real-time decisions rather than have their any type of other documentation interpreted literally? So, and what kind of prompted this as as a criterion in our in our reflections was that in this case, according to Mrs. C and uh, this, this statement was in agreement with other family members, is that Mr. C apparently told Mrs. C that he always trusted her to make the right decision for him at the right time. And yeah, that was to, do what actual, was to do what was necessary, I think, was one of the, one of the words you yeah. also described, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, uh, yep, I believe the direct quote was, I trust you, you will, uh, uh, I trust you will make the right decision. Yep. There you go. <laughs> right. And that really so, was the direct quote in the case. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah, that, and, that, and seems, when we that talk- seems to obviously give then, I mean, as you said, I mean, it's the discretion of saying, okay, I recognize I have a living will and, and all the things that go with that, but um, I'm going to, I'm giving you the discretion to make decisions for me and through a statement like that uh, mm-hmm. to then, and, you know, adding obviously the first two required ones, um, that should make the team feel very comfortable to override it is, is the point you're ultimately making. Well, we recognize that a lot of family mem- or a lot of patients, when they're completing wills, believe that the family does have discretion, or they don't. Uh-huh. They don't recognize that it's it's may not occur in every situation. So, by him actually explicitly saying that, we knew he was one of those patients that did believe that the family would have discretion. Okay. So it, it, it kind of it, it was a way of saying he thought there were limits in the living will, and that it would you know that she would be allowed to override it in certain situations. He. He clearly thought that, at least, in a, at least that was our interpretation of the quote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we asked other family members about, about that possibility, they all, they all agreed that, yeah, that definitely sounds like something Mr. C would say. Well, and then let's also talk about purpose, because one of the things that you said, you know, it's interesting that you found that a lot of people feel, you know, in the example like for Mr. C here related around transplant, you know, I have to fill this out if I want to get listed for transplant. And so, right. you know, that comes back to then, you know, the patient's pers- per- perspective on what the purpose of the living will even was. Mm-hmm. A hoop I have to jump through or an actual document yeah. that's making decisions? Well, you know, yeah, something I've noticed in several hospitals, so this isn't necessarily just the ones that we work in, but living wills are often completed with either the nurse or the social worker or the chaplain who are pulled in a lot of different directions. Maybe they have 20 or 30 different consults that they're doing just completing medical power of attorneys. So it's not always a very robust conversation. I mean, I think we kind of idealized it to be this, you know, conversation between the PCP and patient, long-standing longitudinal relationship, one that's carried over several conversations. It doesn't always happen that way. They're often completed in ICUs in a short amount of time. And you can't always get at all the misunderstandings and misperceptions that patients have, and you may not even know the misperceptions that they have. But particularly in that ICU setting, it's fraught for the possibility of them totally misunderstanding the purpose and nature of the document. And so that's why we put this in here, because we've just experienced that over and over. 
Um, and part of it's a function of the time, and part of it's a function of the capacity of the patient and the fact that it may wax and wane, and part of it is just, um, I think, not having that longitudinal relationship with, with the person that you're completing the document with. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I agree with that, Courtney. And I, I'd also like to say that I think there's an, al- in, an analogy here between a living will and a signed informed consent form in that I think one of the healthier ways to kind of think of any type of advanced care planning documentation is kind of like the evidence of a really robust conversation that took place. And then so, okay, well, yeah, let's concretize that conversation. Let's let's write it down. How do we do that? Well, there's these nice advanced care planning documents to do that in the same way that theoretically, and I think with the most healthy and most um, ethically robust way to think about any type of medical decision that requires informed consent would be, okay, well, there's conversations between healthcare professionals and the patient or surrogate, and then the upshot of that is a signed informed consent document. So it's more of, I think, sometimes putting the cart before the horse with advanced care planning documents if they just become a requisite part of, let's say, a lung transplant workup rather than the result of a, mm-hmm. rather than the result of a in-depth conversation that happens to, that we happen to be able to uh, concretize and kind of preserve a little longer. Mm-hmm. When, when do you, I mean, this will be a self-serving question for you guys, so I'll, I'll caution mm-hmm. you. When, when should people be calling an ethics consult? Assuming you have the ability to have an ethics consult within your medical center. Well, I mean, yeah. what, so, you know, we don't want to be wasting your time at the same, and, and, you know, there's always that scenario too with, with some families uh, undergoing lots of different discussions and decisions. You know, the last thing they need to see is yet another team. You know, they're already seeing, yeah. you know, four different consultants, et cetera. So what, when is it generally appropriate? I mean, I understand if someone calls for something silly, you guys will just politely say yeah. thanks, but no thanks. But maybe we're not using you enough um, at, at times yeah. um, because, I, you know, there's, there are these... There, there are these, you know, relative conflicts that occur not that infrequently in an intensive care setting. Yeah. It's a part of the ongoing dialogue of how, you know, how updating a family on how sick someone is. Hmm. Well, I think I think you should be calling far more often than you are. We'll start with that. <laughs> um, and normally, when we're called, it's so late that honestly, any sort of conflict or disagreement has become intractable, and I, you know, gotcha. I, you can't make any movement when. When you've got a family and another family member that are maybe in disagreeing with each other or family and clinicians are disagreeing with each other. So I always say call early and call often. And, and I think we try to be as helpful in clinical workflow. I think people, people have this notion of, of ethics services at these big ethics committees and it's going to take a whole week to convene and come up with a, with a decision that's not even clinically relevant. And instead, we tried it very much, at least in our program, and I know of several hospitals I've worked with before or work with, in collaboration with them, is we try to really integrate ourselves into workflow just the way you would any other specialist. So if you call, I'm going to do some information gathering. I'm going to talk to the family on my own. I'm going to talk to different people. I'm going to try to do a little bit of work myself rather than, than you having to do it. So I'm going to locate the living will. I'm going to spend some time trying to interpret it. I'm going to probably talk to different family members to try to take some of that onus off of them. So I hope by seeing it that way, teams can say, oh, oh they're here to help and help take on some of the implementation challenges and information gathering challenges that we have in working through these issues. And then eventually, you know, at, through that process and through that analysis, we're able to come up with a, with a resolution that hopefully is, is going to work for everybody. And then also you have to remember, at least in our service, we have pretty extensive backgrounds in mediation. Like this is what we do. So working through a conflict-ridden case isn't, isn't uh, we recognize it's stressful on, on clinicians, but 
we're willing to take that on, and we're we're good at it, frankly. So. Um, so maybe you should right. rename yourselves to an ethics mediation consult, right? I mean, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, when you said at the very beginning, it's often called late. I mean, from very early on, I think that's because you, know, you you represent at least the possibility of coming at it with, and truly having no skin in the game here. You know, yeah, you're not exactly. you're, you're, this isn't your patient. You're not providing direct care. You can take that sort of ten thousand foot view and and look at all the data, if you will. Yeah, and I, you know, I just to kind of drive it home, I had one case very recently that was just horribly, horribly charged for a lot of different reasons, and the clinicians no longer trusted the family, and there was just no therapeutic alliance at all. And I, uh, the, the, the guy and the, the responsible physician, the person on the addressograph, he just looked exhausted, and, I, and it was going to be a meeting that was going to require quite a bit of coming up with middle ground that would work for everyone, and I said, just just let me lead the meeting so you don't have, to, don't have to deal with that. And we came up with, you know, the meeting went very efficiently and came up with a nice resolution. And it was the first time I think this particular physician called us, and I think he recognized that, oh, the service really is here to help me just the way a specialist would help me on, on you know, maybe something I have less expertise in. So I hope people, I'm, I'm wanting, I'm trying to encourage the notion that we're here to help and not, not to penalize anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was one of the things that you know struck me when I was when we were reading it, you know, when I read the article and before our conversation as well. It's a uh, um, it, it's a nice it's a it's a framework. When I and actually to to, the, to your credit and to your team's credit, um, it's uh, it's it's straightforward and I think easy to absorb. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a uh, I always sometimes I think I'll give you my personal perspective. I've always sometimes wondered you know when you when you have an ethics consult, so I don't have a background in law or philosophy, yeah. so I'm not sure I'm going to understand anything yeah. they say to me. Yeah. <laughs> and it was actually very encouraging that um, I read the article. I even understood the article. <laughs> you know, we, we, and that's our whole approach. We write for medical journals. We spend our days with clinicians. We try to make it as practical and as clinically oriented as possible. I, I try to stay away from philosophy language. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Let's see. I think when we're talking about the article, I think maybe we use the word autonomy and beneficence a couple times, but I don't even think I've ever used that in a clinical setting. So we often, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily it's autonomy. It's about making sure that it's a good decision to be made for the patient. And it's not necessarily about beneficence. It's about making sure that, well, the clinician is able to feel as though they're doing more good than harm for the patient. So even even for those of us who have the unfortunate background of being philosophy people, I think we do, we do still do a pretty darn good job of, of keeping, keeping those 10-cent words out of the clinic. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've been talking for a little while, and I think we've hit on a, a significant amount of the themes that you guys are trying to get across. What have we missed? What, what have I not brought up? Hmm, oh, what have you, you not brought up? Hmm. You got a lot of things. I, I guess I guess well, one thing to just underscore, yeah. at least for me, is we don't think living wills are the solution to everything. Um, we, our whole goal is to provide the framework, recognizing that they're not the solution to everything, and, and how do we how do we work through that in a, in a way that's consistent and systematic? So it's just underscoring a point I think we've already made. Maybe they've also yeah. partly become the uh, the the entrance way to have the having that discussion that you know the average layperson is not wanting to have you know ever, and it's become just sort of a shorthand way of saying this is how I approach the pos- possibility of dying, you know, and so it's yeah. the living will, and it's sadly become that shorthand, and I think is what you guys are highlighting. There's mm-hmm. a, a definite need for something a little more uh, in depth, but mm-hmm. as you said, we're we're stuck with it, and we're going to have it, so we might as well embrace it and try to find a way to help it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I do think, along with Courtney underscoring a point, I, I do think it's important to also uh, remember that in, in our case with Mr. C, we definitely thought that it was very justified to think that the living will itself was not necessarily re- representative of the patient's end-of-life wishes and that Mrs. C was, in fact, like making a decision that really reflects more closely Mr. C's end-of-life wishes and preferences. But that said, I do think that the default practice of giving a lot, a lot of credence and assuming that, again, the gold medal standard is the living will itself, I definitely think that that's, that's the place to start. Mm-hmm. Right. And just when we have lots of evidence and we're just kind of thinking, well, is this really the case? That's when we're suggesting trying to think through these considerations and include other people like other docs, uh, social workers and ethicists and chaplains to really kind of sort through what, what might be going on because it is kind of a question of, of weighing evidence. And so if the default is to treat the living will as the gold medal, I, I think that's fine, that's healthy and perfectly consistent. But when we kind of have questions about whether or not it's actually hitting that, given what we're hearing from surrogates, I think that's when these considerations are most helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, terrific. Well, guys, thank you so much for actually a great discussion and a, and a fantastic article to, uh, you know, give us, I think, a foundation to, to be able to, you know, actually apply to our clinical practice when we have this scenario between, you know, as you call it, navigating the ethical conflicts that go on between, you know, what's been written down on paper and then, from, you know, kind of what you're hearing in front of you at the bedside. So mm-hmm. um, I, I really appreciate you offering up a, a nice framework for, for a busy clinician. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's our goal. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for a great discussion. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. You're very Bye-bye. welcome. All right. Good night.